you'll open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. We have taken chapters 7 and 8 of Daniel in three parts. I've hoped and desired that you would see the connectivity of these two visions uh, and the ideas of the visions in chapters 7 and 8. And also, you've seen the distinctiveness of some of the context of these two visions. And in this final message of these two chapters this morning, I hope we will tie all of this together with the two visions in the whole uh, of the sense of verses 9 through 14 of chapter 7. So what I want to do is I want to read verses 1 through 14. We haven't been here in a little while. We've moved through the parts, and it's been a few, been a few weeks since we've even looked at Daniel. So I want to read these verses uh, 1 through 14 to kind of remind you of some of this context as we will kind of finish out part 3 this morning of Daniel 7 and 8. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in the mind as he lay on his bed. And he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much, eat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another little one came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the root before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white snow. And the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. 
a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court set, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In these chapters, we've seen these visions And these visions described rulers and kingdoms during Daniel's time. And they were spanning approximately the next 800 to 1,000 years. That's about 605 B.C. to somewhere near 600 A.D. And when we looked at this previously in the context, we dealt with the visions themselves in chapter 7. Not so much with 9 through 14, because I wanted you to see that was an overarching culmination. We looked at the visions that were pronounced of these four beasts in chapter 7, and we saw the outworking of that sense of these four earthly rulers and kingdoms. We saw in chapter 8 that there was some measure of understanding of the same kingdoms, and yet there was an emphasis on Greece and its ruler. Alexander the Great. When we looked at these four kingdoms, we noted these earthly kingdoms were recognized to Daniel as that which was present and near and far future to him. There was Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and his successors, Medo-Persia, Cyrus and his successors, Greece, Alexander and his successors, Rome, the Caesars, and his successors. We saw this emphasis on Rome in chapter 7 and Greece in chapter 8. Each one having a little bit of an, an outward perspective, pulling in in a microscopic way onto one of these great nations and rulers. Rome being in chapter 7 and how Rome would ultimately be, ultimately be dealt with. Greece in chapter 8 and how Greece would ultimately be dealt with. And here in chapter 7 now comes a culmination of an understanding that there's more to it than that which is just an earthly sense. There's something greater and more overarching than anything that could be imagined just in the earthly, uh, national, or kingdom perspective. We saw the emphasis of the two little horns, one in chapter 7 of the Caesars and how they would ultimately be dealt with. We saw the emphasis of the little horn in chapter 8, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He was 
of the Antichrist like John had mentioned in his letter. And he would be dealt with as well. But here in verses 7 through 14, it shifts to this almost dual context. I don't use the word dual mean that they're competing with one another. Um, I use that in the sense of, of the complexity of the nature of how they work together. We saw Daniel had two visions with two little horns and two antichrists. And this morning we will say Daniel has two visions with one eternal king and kingdom. Daniel has two visions with one eternal king and kingdom. The emphasis has been primarily on the idea of these earthly rulers and these earthly kingdoms. And now there's going to be an emphasis not only on an earthly ruler and kingdom, but a kingdom that is eternal and a ruler that is eternal. If you think about it for a moment, we need to have the context and the sense of, of how broad and powerful this really is. Um, we have thought for some time in America that America has been the greatest, to some, and the most powerful nation in the world. Now, that's a pretty big statement. I want you to think about that for a minute. When you're saying that a nation is the most powerful in the world, or even calling it the most influential in the world, now, you can embellish that and make that statement as if you know, it's not necessarily true. You're just trying to make something greater than it really is. But we could say that the nation of America has had the greatest influence on the world and the world stage for a lengthy period of time. Just think about, just for a moment, the influence of America in the context of World War II. I think it's safe to say, had America not entered that world war, Hitler would have taken over all of Europe, and we have no idea how much further he would have gone. He was, through Mussolini, he was working on uh, the coast of Africa. Uh, he was marching to look at Russia and Asia. I don't know. We don't know. But had America not entered that war the world landscape would look a lot different today. So think a moment. When we start to put that in a modern context, we're saying nations have power. Rulers have power. Nations have influence. There's a context to the whole of this. So in Daniel's day, these four nations, these kingdoms and their rulers were seen to be very influential. This was very powerful that a, a nation could come in and completely take over the Middle East and take over uh, the Jewish nation as a whole and then begin to spread far and wide so much that Rome at one time covered most of what was considered the known world at the time. We spoke in detail some weeks ago about the vastness of the Roman Empire. Stretching to as far as Britannia or what would be Britain today 
in the west, north going to Germania, south into Africa, east all the way over to the farthest rivers of the Middle East. The range was incredible. We're not talking about a time where you had mobile vehicles and warriors that could be moved by planes. These were warriors and groups of soldiers marching days and weeks and months and years at a time to conquer vast, vast acreages, square miles of land, far beyond what we would think of today. For Daniel to have these visions and see these nations and kingdoms and for these things to come to fruition. Can you imagine the Jewish reader looking at all of that happening and going, whoa. Babylon did take us over. Whoa. Medo-Persia was a vast empire. Cyrus the Great reached far and wide. And he kept even Egypt under some control. The Jewish reader reading this later on realizes Rome is happening. Greece has already unfolded and Rome is happening. And look at how they have just controlled these people groups with these city, states, and nations. In the midst of all this vision and explanation of what will happen on the earth in the present, in the near future, and even for Daniel, what was the far future, the Jewish reader would have to stop for a moment and say how amazing it is not only that Daniel knew this, but the God of all the ages had planned it. And purposed it in such a way that it could be revealed through Daniel and it did happen. But in the midst of these visions of the beasts, Daniel has this other vision in verse 9. And I kept looking until thrones were set up. We will see in verses 9 through 14, the the kingdom themes are presented in plain language. Now, there's an apocalyptic nature to this section as well as the other sections. The language is apocalyptic in its presentation. But we have to note here in verses 9 through 14, there's some very plain language too. The idea of thrones, the idea of robes, the idea of thousands serving around this royal throne, the court set. These are kind of plain themes. They shouldn't even be far from our mind. We should have some understanding that the idea of, of, of something being set up here in a sense of this plain language of a kingdom. And even in verses 13 and 14, there's a plain language in some way of a great ruler. Something is happening here. This plain language becomes important 
in aiding our understanding and interpreting the apocalyptic sense of the vision as well. Let's look at that. The kingdom themes are presented in apocalyptic language. Number one, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days speaks of God. The Ancient of Days speaks of God. How do we know it speaks of God? Well, consider, number one, the thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The idea of his vestiture or his robes or his clothing was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. When we think of the Ancient of Days, we need to be very careful here. A number of pastor theologians warn and caution us at this point. Oftentimes when people think of the Ancient of Days, they think of this in the sense of of just time or uh, this is an old wise man. That's kind of the Western idea, as one uh, theologian put it, is people will try to read this and think of the old wise man. But that's not really what this phrase indicates at all. As one writer put it, an almost adequate, now notice how he phrases this, an almost adequate translation of this unusual name of God would be the eternal one. Here is the translation of the phrase in its probably best context is eternal one. Ancient of days is speaking of the idea of one who had no beginning. The one who is, was, and is, and is to come. The ancient of days is the one who is eternal. It gives us a sense that not only is he eternal, but his kingdom is eternal and infinite. It's interesting how one writer puts it in speaking of his kingdom being eternal and intimate. He notes the idea of the wheels burning with fire. And he says, though these wheels of the throne do not seem to be in motion, as were those in Ezekiel's vision, he says... Ancient royal thrones were sometimes represented as having wheels. Why why would that be? Why would it be important to note the idea of a throne having wheels? It's the idea of this throne having far-reaching mobility. Well, this gives us a context to understand. God's throne is not set in one place and He only rules over one particular area. This is the idea of God and His eternal nature ruling over all things eternally. There's not a place at any one time that God is not there. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere simultaneously all at once. The Ancient of Days. We recognize that God's throne is a throne that is omnipresent, as this writer says, for God's judgment is, or as is He Himself, His throne is omnipresent. If we're going to talk about the judgment of God being an eternal judgment, we have to talk about His throne being an eternal throne and it being omnipresent. Think about it for a moment. To lessen God's throne as though it's at one single place and he has to get there to be on it. No. 
just as God is, His throne is. He is. He's always on His throne. He is omnipresent, so therefore His throne is omnipresent, and He is always sovereign over all things. Daniel speaks of this eternal one as the ancient of days, as this vision is given to him. But not only is it the eternal one, but notice that he is pure in his judgment and sovereignty. He is pure in his judgment and sovereignty. Think for a moment of the language here in verse 9. His robe or clothing or vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. The idea of the word pure is speaking of his holiness. This is the purity of God. He doesn't wear actual clothes, but if you're speaking of a king, what would you say of a king's clothing? You would say that it was the best of the best. If he was a real and true king and you you wanted your people to see who you are as this great king, the king would walk out onto a, a castle balcony and he would walk out and be as dirty as nasty as possible, right? No. He would have his glorious clothes on and his great robe to show how wonderful and mighty he is with his crown and for his people to see him. Certainly this is the idea of the western kingship. Other kingships may not be the same. But those other kingships from whatever part of the nations they may be. The idea of the king was that he was always the one who stood tall. And people could see him rightly for who he is. And all his judgments were pure. Nobody argued with the king. Well only the ancient of days can stand up to that. Only... He alone is so pure, his hair being of pure wool, that he could be seen in such a way that his judgment and sovereignty are pure. It's quite a distinction that this vision is making between the beasts and the Ancient of Days, isn't it? These beasts are really put together in weird parts of parts. It doesn't talk about the beast of a lion who stood strong as a king and roared. It talks about a lion who's got parts and parts and parts. A leopard who's got odd parts and parts and parts. This terrifying beast that can't even be identified. And yet here we see the Ancient of Days is given to us in the language of he's being, in his very essence, he's pure. Pure as snow. Which would mean that his very judgment is pure on snow. We know the, so- the sovereignty of God in all these things is shown in his judgment. And here the vision gives that idea of the hair of pure wool. It's the silver-headed one of Proverbs who is wise. It's the sense we have of understanding the Ancient of Days and the purity of who he is and the judgment he will make. And how he can be a sovereign king like no other. All these other kings are not like him. And they can't be. 
Alexander the Great did things far beyond what most men could ever imagine. And yet he was nothing like the ancient of days. As one writer puts it, he says, Clothing worn by the ancient of days was white as snow, symbolizing the absolute moral purity spoken of in Isaiah 118 and Revelation 114 of the divine judge. His hair was white like wool. He says, White hair is a sign of old age and an apt symbol of God's eternal nature. Already emphasized in this passage by the title, Ancient of Days, the figure may delineate the holiness of God as well. If we were to think of nothing else in this purity, we have to think of the holiness of God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever known historically, read of, a historical ruler who was perfect in all of his judgments? Have you lived under a president or a ruler of any kind that was perfect in all of his judgments? You see what Daniel's vision is saying is there's a day of a coming king where all judgments will be pure and right. Well, not only is he pure in his judgment and sovereignty, he is sure in his judgment and sovereignty. He is sure in his judgment and sovereignty. How do we note that? We note this in these passages by the use of, of the idea of fire. The throne, his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Fire often in the scripture indicates judgment. But it not only indicates judgment, it indicates the surety of coming judgment. Now, this gets to be a place where a lot of people don't want to have this discussion, and especially the culture doesn't like this discussion. But there's a real sense of understanding here that the scripture teaches thoroughly, very thoroughly. That one of the most emphasized ideas and uses of fire is judgment and the surety of that coming judgment. That God will not allow sin and evil to go unjudged ultimately. It will be dealt with. This is one of the reasons that the present culture, as past cultures, continues to kick against the truth of God's word. They do not want to answer to anyone. You and I, who are believers in the room, the only reason that we think differently is because our hearts have been changed by the very God, the, the Ancient of Days, through the work of His Son, by the power of the Spirit. We've been given new hearts to believe. And although there's still remaining flesh that kicks against these truths, there is an overwhelming truth of God's word in our heart that we desire to follow him and we delight to meditate on his word and his law and we, we love it. But the, but the unbelieving person does not love the word of God. In fact, they hate the judgments of God 
and they want to be in charge all the time, even telling God what to do. And God will not have it. These symbols of fire are not just an indication of judgment, but they are the surety of coming judgment. And that's identified in these four earthly kingdoms and rulers. What kingdom of the four mentioned here is left standing in its full significance as it was in history? Not one of them. Rome lasted probably the longest. And it's really nothing today. Nothing. There are no Caesars today. All that Rome has left is some historic past in museums. There are some buildings left on the countryside. There are ideas from these buildings. But that kingdom and that king and his successors, they do not stand. This is the Ancient of Days being revealed as the one who he himself controls the nations. He himself controls the nations. Not one nation is outside of the sovereignty and the judgment and the activity and the work of the Ancient of Days, the sovereign God. As one writer put it, Fire is commonly a symbol of judgment, and God's throne being engulfed in flames signifies the wrath of God that is here being poured out upon the wicked. Verse 10, the river of fire coming from the throne describes God's judgment is being poured out upon the wicked, particularly upon the kingdom of the little horn and the beast when Christ returns. We have to understand the significance of fire itself in its idea. Once a fire begins rolling with its flame, it is almost unstoppable. The fire God will use in the cleansing of this earth, that it would be reconciled to him and regenerated, that a regenerated people who would then be glorified could inhabit this place and this kingdom. This is giving us an indication that it does not matter about the plans of man. No ruler will thwart the ancient of days. His plan is not only greater, greater and mightier, but it is the one and only plan that is actually being worked out perfectly all of the time. It may seem like others are in control. It may seem like others have plans. It may seem like George Soros has something he's doing. Well, sure, he's got billions of dollars. He's doing all kinds of stuff. But you know what? Our God does not give a flip about his billions of dollars. 
because he didn't give a flip about Alexander the Great and all of his power either. Alexander the Great was a tool to an end. God was bringing about his work. And what was his work? Those nations had to come to be in the purpose of the Son of Man coming the first time. That was the purpose. And we read of this in its next verses, in its context, because the little horn is going to be destroyed and and taken away in verses 11 and 12. None of them will have dominion except what is granted to them for an appointed period of time, verse 12 says. But then Daniel keeps looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Number two. The Son of Man speaks of Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of Man speaks of Jesus, the Son of God. It's very interesting here. Look as it says that he sees with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man can approach the throne. And He can approach it safely. Alexander the Great could not approach the throne of the Ancient of Days safely in and of his own self and kingship. He couldn't say, I am Alexander the Great. I am approaching you, God Almighty, and you will let me in to your throne room. If he had tried that, He would have been struck immediately. And he would have been like Ananias and Sapphira. He would have been drug out dead. Not one of these rulers mentioned previously could approach God's throne because they were only, only creatures. They were men earthly rulers who did not recognize that any power they had had been given to them by God himself and God alone. But this son of man is not from the earth. He's not a creature. Daniel had even been given that idea through the vision that he had dealt with earlier in chapter 2 to Nebuchadnezzar. Because in that vision... There was this great statue. And how was the statue brought down? He said, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. This stone that was cut out would be the same stone that the builders would reject. This stone that was cut out was cut out without hands. This stone was the Lord Jesus who came, born of the Virgin Mary, living a perfect sinless life on this very earth and dying a sinner's death, raised from the dead on the third day and ascending to be with the Father some 40 days later. It's this Son of Man 
that through his work on this earth, he crushes the little horns. And he approaches this throne with boldness because he is of God. He is deity. If we were to note Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, we would pay close attention to Jesus' language. It says, but he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus uses almost a direct quotation from Daniel here. Saying, I am that promised one. I am the only one who can approach the throne. I am the very son of man. I was born of the Virgin Mary and I've lived on this earth. And I have fulfilled those things that the Father gave me to do. I've done them willingly and I've done them perfectly because I am of the same nature as he is. I am the exact representation of who he is. As one author noted, this is the most compelling evidence for the messianic identification of the Son of Man. It's furnished by Jesus himself. Right here. But it's also noteworthy to see that it wasn't only understood by Jesus himself, but the very ruler that is questioning him at the time understood exactly what Jesus was saying because he said he turned to all the people around him and goes, You've heard the blasphemy. Verse 64. Spend some time and look at it and recognize this ruler knew. He knew it. He had read enough of the scripture to know what Jesus was saying about himself. Jesus was saying, I am here and I am fulfilling all that was said in Daniel chapter 7. I am the son of man and there is none like me. I am the one who can approach the throne. I can come up to the ancient of days. And in fact, he did. After he completed his work, he fulfilled his ministry, the miracles, the preaching, everything that he was designed in context to do in the sense of what his father had sent him to do, everything that was designed for him, he and the father had agreed on before the beginning of time, this intra-Trinitarian work that had gone on that we don't even fully have any con concept of. It just makes our minds go... All of it was worked out in Christ. As one pastor noted, think about with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. That's the ascension. To have the ascension, you had to have the virgin birth. To have the ascension, you had to have the perfect life. To have the ascension, you had to have the sinner's atonement made. To have the ascension, you had to have the resurrection of the body. 
The Son of Man is speaking of the humanity of Christ. But it is not denying the deity of Christ. In fact, it's only bolstering it. For only in His deity and His humanity could He accomplish these things. And He did. And then He ascended in the cloud. Right? It's what Acts Luke records. And when He ascended in the cloud, did the Ancient of Days reject Him? No! He could sit right down with the Father where He is. It's not that they are in place, as we've talked about before, yet the Lord Jesus still is in body, glorified state, and they are now working together in tandem as they have been for all time, space, and history. The one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the whole of the kingdom is being worked out because God is saving people all over. Every tribe and tongue and nation, He's saving His people. And He's glorifying Himself through the salvation of those people all over this globe. It's been going on for these thousands and thousands of years. It's been happening and it's been unfolding before our eyes. And it's in greater perspective now in covenant than it's ever been. And He's not losing one of them. Not even when they live in a terrible nation that hates their people. Not even when they live under a terrible dictator who hates their people. He's not losing one of them. He's keeping and sustaining all of them, upholding them. Until a second coming day. Where the Son of Man will crush that little horn finally and forever for all eternity. This tells us that the Son of Man is given authority as the Son of God. How do we know he's given this authority? Well, the text says it in verse 14. Not only could he be presented before the Ancient of Days, it says, and to him was given dominion. Glory is the idea of worship and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. You know what's interesting to me is that there are people who hate God, but they're still serving him. They're serving his purposes. They may not be bowing the knee to their heart to Him, but they are serving Him. But there's a coming day that all will serve. They will bow to Him. Every single person will bow to Him. Some will be welcome in. And some will be cast into the lake of fire. The Son of Man has a dominion that is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, the text says, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is the culmination of these visions. This is it. Magnify whoever you want, Rome or Greece. God does both here for Daniel, telling them this is going to happen over the next 800 to 1,000 years. No worries! My people will be saved and kept, and I will not lose one of them. You know, that's the same message for us today. We need to be real careful. We don't get too far into 
figuring out how to have an, our own earthly kingdom and recognize the importance of the kingdom of God being worked out in the purpose and the work of the Son, the Lord Jesus, in the context of salvation. People's hearts being changed that they would bow the knee to the one true living God, culminating in churches being planted and the idea of true work of Christ going out into all nations, tribes, and tongues. I want us to have a better nation. But there's only one surefire way of us having a better nation, and that's true revival. There's only one surefire way of us having a better nation, and that's the ultimate return of Christ to where he ushers in his eternal kingdom. This earth is burned up in fire and regenerated. Nothing of this evil kingdom is left to stand. Those who inhabit it, the dead, and those alive will be cast in a lake of fire who would not believe. Eternal gnashing of teeth. And all who believed will be caught up and kept. And they will inhabit this new heaven and this new earth. And they will work as one nation under God. One kingdom under Christ. And they will all do what is pleasing to him. In a glorified state. In a new heaven and a new earth. Most of this is about something that's very far future to Daniel but is past history to us. But it opens up for us in the preaching and teaching of Christ and the New Testament, the understanding of the new covenant and what it means to see the Son of Man coming again. I pray today you'll be comforted that the Son of Man can approach the throne safely. I pray that you will be comforted that the Son of Man can, will, and does grant the ability for others to approach the throne safely. Will you come through Him into this kingdom? Or will you keep fighting for a kingdom of your own? Or will you join the kingdom of Christ? Living unto him in all things. Loving him in all things. Bow the knee of your heart to the one living eternal king, Christ Jesus the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have no other hope but you as the Ancient of Days and the purpose of work of your Son, the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. Give us hearts that will bow our knee to him, honoring him in all things, that we would repent of our sin and turn to him 
not only as King, but the one and only Savior and Lord of our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.